Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Two of the most terrifying experiences have been sitting in a boat where actually nothing is happening, but in your head, it's just like every alarm bell on the planet is going off because... You can't get the motor started. There's no one on the radio. No one's coming to get you. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 71 with Corin Smith. Corin is a fly fisherman, a photographer and an activist. At the time of recording, I've just spent a week filming with Corin for a project about fly fishing and we spent many of our evenings debating the rights and wrongs and highs and lows of the world. I knew from the moment he arrived that I would want to record a chat with Corin, but I'm glad that I waited until the last day, as we'd spent a lot of time together by this point, and we really did dive deep into some of the grittier experiences Corin has had. In this episode, we talk about Corin's origins, growing up in rural Scotland, his journey to London to work on a start-up, leaving it all to become a fly fishing guide in Africa and ultimately moving home to Scotland where he campaigns for the regulation of the salmon farming industry. There are some adult themes in this episode and we discuss the use and misuse of alcohol as well as some of the darker sides of living and working in the far-flung corners of the world. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. Okay, over to Corin Smith. Can you begin by giving me a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, your background, and how we've ended up here? I don't know if it can be brief. Um, <laughs> uh, my name's uh, Corin Smith. Uh, I'm a fly fishing guide, a photographer, salmon farm campaigner, um, and uh, I'm here up in the northwest of Scotland um, on a shoot with Cold House to, um, to do a short film for Yeti. Nice. And can you tell me a bit about your early life, childhood, and how you got involved in the outdoors and the kind of things you do now? Uh, yeah, so um, my uh, dad was a stalker, uh, so I'm working on sporting estates, shooting deer. Um, when I was born, um, and I was born up near a place called Dorney, up in the, up in the northwest, not too far from here. Near um, Castle, everyone will know Alien Donan. Um, and uh, not long after I was born, we moved uh, a bit further south down into Perthshire, where Dad started farming. He was a sheep farmer. Mum was a got a job as a teacher. So for the first sort of eighteen years, I was just on a on a sheep farm on the top of a hill, uh, outside a small village called Blair Athel. So, um, yeah, chasing 
stuff around the hills, shooting rabbits and catching fish and doing all that all that good stuff. Would you describe it as a normal childhood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was I had a great childhood. Um, you know, there's all the standard stuff you have in families, you know, ebbs and flows and people getting on and not getting on, but um uh yeah, it was nor it was it was it was normal. Um uh yeah, lots of lots of time outdoors. It was uh, quite isolated. You you know, I was at least about three three miles out the village and almost straight uphill. So no one from the village was ever that keen to 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 make the journey up the hill. So um, there was a lot of very fast bike rides down into the village, um, and a lot of long, slow walks pushing the bike back up the hill. Um, and I spent a lot of time out in the out on the hill doing stuff myself. But uh, no, mom and dad gave me a gave me a great childhood, and I've got a sister, younger sisters who who's a year year and a half younger than me. Um, and uh, yeah, no, everything everything was great. It was all it was all good nice rural community um farmers other farmers nearby we all knew each other and knew each other's kids and things like that so um yeah it was it was great and were you always or when did you get involved in fly fishing climbing wandering about the fly fishing was pretty much from the get-go because dad's dad i mean dad was a shepherd on an estate um near another village called kinloch rannach um when i was about four or five and that's some of my earliest memories as dad and dad had me when he was quite young so dad was 24 when he had me so he would have only been 30 at that point um so he was out you know doing a bit of fishing on the local trout lock so he dragged me along um and uh yeah that's my earliest memories is out pottering about sitting in the boat usually with like some oversized sort of wax jacket or like plastic jacket that was barely waterproof and absolutely freezing um so that you know the the living in you know the outdoors and kicking about it, it wasn't really something you ever started it was just that's just what what you know what happened telly was crap so you know there's no internet or anything like that you were just you were either sitting in the house um you know getting bored or you were outside you know even at sort of five or six years old building huts or building little fires or being dragged around to dad's work that was that was always that was always the best thing getting chucked in the the seat next to your old man on the tractor or the land rover or something like that or on a quad bike did you think you'd end up a farmer no i don't think i ever thought i'd end up a farmer um it wasn't again. It was. It wasn't something I ever kind of consciously. I've, I've always been pretty spontaneous, so I've never really actually planned to do anything much more than maybe six months to a year in front of me. I've been incredibly lucky my whole life, and that's not led me into any trouble or any kind of dead ends. But yeah, so I didn't really think about it, and then also it, because it was, it's what I'd always been in. It, it's not really something you make a. I wasn't really thinking consciously about am I going to be a farmer. Um, and dad was a tenant farmer, so we'd, you know, we'd only been in that farm for, you know, when I was 15 years old, we'd only been in the farm 10 years. So it's not like it was generation after generation. So, you you know, there was an expectation. I think dad kind of thought I might take it on. Um, but to be honest, by the time it came to, by the time it came to me leaving, um, I think dad had resolved as well that he'd he'd pretty much had enough and it was there was no life a hill sheep farm's a hard it's a hard life it's a pretty marginal existence 
um, you know, we only had a thousand a thousand yows, and that's just about enough for one man to make a living to keep his keep his family going. And actually, the, probably the economic powerhouse of the family was mum teaching. Um, and it's a it's a hard gig because you're you're on a thousand yows is just you're on your own. It's not enough to have somebody else. So that means there's no breaks or holidays except for you know getting your your next door neighbours to to cover for you for a week or so. So that means you know non-stop feeding uh, through the winter, um, and then you know just admin, uh, then lambing, and then summertime, and then you're clipping, and then you're into um, a bit of admin sorting out as much as you can before winter kicks off again. So yeah, it's it's pretty relentless and a lot of work for for not a lot of return. Um, so yeah, when it came to it, you know, when I was thinking about taking off. Yeah, I think that dad was certainly never pushing me to pushing me to stay. And what did taking off look like? Um, well, in in all honesty, in the classic kind of not um, not really having a plan. Um, of course, it was university. That's what I was, you know, at school told. That's what your, you know, that's your next natural step. As you do in Scotland, you did your standard grades, then you did your hires, and then if you got good enough hires, you were off to university or college. Um. So uh, I got my hires when I was 17 and I left school a year, well, technically a year early. So I started just doing a bit of fencing and stuff like that, just working on the hills. Um, and then I went to uni and I lasted about three months before I bailed out. Um, I just I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that um, I was going, I thought genuinely, I thought that when I'd left school, that was when I had to stop studying. I didn't have to work anymore. And then when I got to uni, I was like, what? I, you want me to buy books and go to lectures and like do even more studying and writing? And I was just like, I'm just, I wasn't up for that at all. So I bailed out. Um, I ended up at that university though. I was meant to go, I think I was meant to go to Glasgow and right at the last minute, I ended up going to Edinburgh um, completely on a whim because um, I'd met a girl and she was going there and so I think I applied to Edinburgh through clearing um, and it, was, it didn't really make a lot of difference, it wouldn't have mattered where I'd gone but um, yeah that was, that pattern repeated itself over and over and over again for the rest of, well up until this day basically, making decisions based on tr- trying to get girls I think, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Is that, We're getting into the deep bit already and that's the story <laughs> uh, Yeah Um so you bailed out of uni and then? Um, I bailed out of uni and then I ended up, um, I can't remember exact timelines, but the next thing I did was um, I then enrolled in a course, uh, an HND at, co- at my local college to do audio engineering, which again, which again was complete accident. So that was like studio recording, like learn how to drive a desk, all that kind of stuff, um, record bands which I am not musical, I can't play an instrument, I didn't really know many people who were, um, and there's no real history of playing musical instruments in my family. And the only reason I ended up on the course is because at 20 years old, uh, well, from like later on in school up to about 20, I was really into um, like uh, going to outdoor raves and all that kind of stuff. It was still pretty organic then. So you like an outdoor rave in our area was like 40 of you in a shed. Um, with you know a couple a couple of lights, a smoke machine, and uh, uh, and a DJ. And so I was like, so I was DJing and and 
um, uh, doing a lot of that stuff. And then I, I knew I kind of had to go and do something at college. So I, I'd read the college prospectus and there was this like old like classic, again, just skimming through it. And I saw this thing about mixing and I thought, oh, well, I do a bit of mixing. I'd be up for that. So I went and joined this course and it was absolutely nothing to do with DJing or mixing or anything like that. But it was a, it was a brilliant course. So I did two years on a subject which I knew nothing about really enjoyed the process of learning and then have done nothing with since I left. Um, so that I left and then I spent a year working um, in a local kind of department store. Then I did a bit of faffing about traveling different places with pals. Um, um, and then ended up in, again, completely out, complete coincidence, ended up in London working on a dot-com startup and that was that that's probably the dot-com startup was like my career if you like and that lasted about eight years um and that was in london so um yeah by complete fluke and chance and luck that's where i ended up and you, yeah how i mean so it's one of the like i left i left college i got a job in um a, a store called the house of brewer which everyone who's driven up and down the a9 will know um, it was this big kind of department store in the middle of nowhere um, off um, the A9 as you drive north in Scotland. So I got a job there for the summer, um, washing plates in the kitchen, which hands down is the best job I've ever had. It was just great. I'd turn up every morning at like 10 o'clock. There was a, and I had my own little space. I can't, what was it? I was a, no, I wasn't a kitchen porter. I was like the plate washer and it was really busy. So that meant, um, I had my wee space in the back and like this big steam cleaner thing and I quite like process so plates would come in and I'd, ha and I'd come up with ways of kind of optimizing the whole process so it moved really quickly um, but I'd have a stereo and it was, it was like being in like a Turkish steam bath because it was all like the big steam cleaner thing so I had a stereo which I had a few like banging cassettes um, that I'd put in there and I'd just I'd switch that on from the word go and then it would just be like head down dealing with plates for eight hours. I loved it. It was brilliant. No stress, no hassle. Um, um, but I worked there for the summer and then somehow I ended up working in the menswear department there on like a couple, there was, there was someone didn't turn up for work or something. Again, by complete fluke and coincidence, the boss... The boss there asked me to do some more in the menswear department and then I became like in the space of about three months I became an assistant manager because someone had fallen over and hurt themselves so I was counting cash. So I was ended up being there for about a year and a half and became sort of a young manager of the of the place. Um, uh, and then um, during the, the, la the last summer before I left, I met a girl in Pitlochry um, like on a night out who I completely fell in love with. She was an actress at Pitlochry Festival Theatre. Um, and I won't I won't tell your name, so I don't embarrass her now, but I fell completely head over heels and she was the mo like one of the most sophisticated people I'd ever met at that time. She was a like a proper thesp, super smart, um, really talented um, from London, obviously doing a shift in the local festival theatre um, to get, uh, you know, to do a bit of mileage. But anyway, I fell madly in love with her and she left and she went to London. So I kind of decided, right, well, I better make something of myself and I'm going I'm going to go to London too. I mean, there was no consultation with her or anything. Basically, she left at the end of the summer and sacked me and said, right, bye. Anyway, I thought I'll go to London. It'll be great. And a friend of a friend who I was working with in the House of Brewer said he had a pal who knew someone who was starting this company about in London and 
I sent me on an interview, um, and I pitched up and did a like did an interview for like basically a dog's body, um, and this company was betfair.com which was a um sport an online sports betting company in its simplest terms and it was a little bit different it was a genuine turned out that it was a genuine kind of innovation kind of revolutionary product which took sports betting from being kind of an old man's sort of in the bookies type deal betting on took gray arms um to um it was essentially like a financial trading platform where you could bet for outcomes and against them and trade um like you would do in financial markets and it just went absolute gangbusters um um so yeah i ended up staying there for for a long time but yeah it was again no absolutely no foresight or anything like that just pure pure luck yeah and i'm just fascinated by it all because of where you come from and where you went to yeah but like what was life like during that time it's great i mean i've been unbelievably lucky you know i'm a tall fit white privileged guy um i didn't go to boarding school or anything like that my, my folks weren't rich um but you know i, I had an incredibly comfortable privileged life there's no you know when you think you have strife and troubles you know it, it's not really it was a very middle class upbringing so it was all good and it was just it was just a riot i mean i loved london i genuinely loved london um because i'm quite i'm not that I'm very social, but I don't like I don't like really intimate. I'm not that keen on very high degree of intimacy. So I liked the as it like the anonymity of London. I liked the fact that I could sit in the tube and you're surrounded by people. So you it's can be quite stimulating because I'm really visual. I like looking at people and watching people and what they're up to. But you're not required to kind of participate. Um, and uh, so I really enjoyed London from that perspective and there was just loads to do. So, um, you know, stuff that I really liked doing, um, whether it was, you know, clubbing, like clubbing and all the music and that kind of side. And then it, like, um, I bet I could still play, you know, I was still playing quite a lot of sport at that time. So I could do a bit of that. Um, and then um, work, you know, work was really good. Um, I enjoyed work a lot. Although I never went to uni, I was um, quite handy with numbers and stuff like that so uh, i enjoyed i enjoyed the work a lot um so it was it was it was an amazing experience i i, I regret um well regret's the wrong word I, I i i was sad to leave london in the end and i still haven't been back i haven't lived there for a long time now but um i uh, i still enjoy going back for exactly the same reason that you can kind of park your arse on a seat in the tube and um um and watch the world go by. Um, I love that. And I've never read as much as I did in London. I never read, I'm a complete Philistine. I never read when I was younger, but in London, I used to read a book every two weeks, just sitting on the tube and it was great. I loved it. I'm just fascinated how you go from that to then choosing to be, or live a life that's fairly, you know, isolated, living in East Africa, et cetera. I think that the London, like working in an office, doing what I did in the office is probably the outlier. If you actually, you know, I was from the countryside. I was always going to be, I, I like, you know, I was born and raised in in the outdoors. And that's, I, it was inevitable. That's where I was always going to end up um, in some form or other. Um, so the London stuff, and well, it wasn't just London, but working in an office all over the place um, was the kind of outlier. But I really, really enjoyed it. But afterwards, it was very much, I mean, I, basically, I've, I, 
finished up working in an office because I was 29. I didn't really know how good I had it. And I thought, well, I'll always go back to it. But I'd spent so much time looking out the window. And I was just like, I want to go and do some other stuff. Um, and I want to be outside. Um, I don't want to be sitting indoors all the time. And it had been, you know, it, it had been eight years. It doesn't sound like a long time, but eight years in on a dot-com startup is, is insane because you're just, I mean, I, oh, I, I can't remember. Like the hours we were working were just, were, were absolute madness, like relentless, having maybe two weeks off a year, that'd be it, and working every single weekend. Um, so eight years was a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just, uh, it was all, I was always going to end up outdoors. And then, uh, um, yeah, I did. I just ended up heading off and doing my own thing and um, started off with a bit of traveling and looking around, doing the stuff that I hadn't been able to do for eight years. And then, pretty quickly I, I'm not that big a fan of being a tourist I find it a bit kind of superficial I like to be kind of in it and wherever you are and it, I don't think it matters what you do I think as long as you're working wherever you are you kind of you become part of the the uh, the landscape there although I, I don't think going and teaching Africans how to build mud huts qualifies as working so it wasn't any of that kind of stuff it was you know go and get a job doing doing something which was? Um, what did I... I started off... I went to... Where did I go? Oh, yeah, I went to New Caledonia, which is like an island off the east of New Zealand and a bit north. So it's kind of sort of in the Fiji kind of neck of the woods. Um, so I went there and messed around for a while. Um, oh, that's because of, when I left Betfair, sorry, I was in Australia. Well, I was actually in Tasmania at that point. I'd been there for... T- like 18 months setting up a, a second data center down there and um, um so that yeah that yeah that makes a bit more sense i've been down there kind of spreading my wings out of tasmania looking around so i ended up in like the south seas and the pacific and stuff um bouncing around there and then eventually ended up doing a trip in the seashells with a company a south african company called fly castaway um, and at that point i was only i think i was still 28 or 29 um and uh after doing the trip with them i decided I, I, you know I, the trip was fantastic but i wanted to work as a guide um, like a fly fishing guide taking people fishing um uh so i did a basically did an apprenticeship with them for about a year oh i didn't realize that so you you were a customer before you were yeah oh that's cool yeah so i met them and then um decided i wanted to yeah i wanted to be a fly fishing guide and i wanted to you know normally you're like 18 when you start that but um uh yeah so i just went and kind of i mean i could i could fish no problem but the, it's not fishing is irrelevant when you're a fly fishing guide you don't get it's the one thing you don't do is actually fish um so you, you had to learn everything else yeah so it's a huge broad question but talk me through those years of that process and what you experienced well I, I, the, the process i think the, the big part of the process is just kind of the mental adjustment because you it is yeah Fly like fly fishing's the, the the context, but it's really just a service industry. So it's learning that process of service, and um and escaping the notion that you being an absolutely amazing fisherman doesn't make you a better or a worse guide. Frankly, it, your ability is absolutely irrelevant. The ability that's most important is um your ability to make somebody else um either a better. Um, fly fisherman or be able to ensure that 
um, you're so good at what you do and you understand the ecosystem so well and the fish and the way they behave that you are able to maneuver that person into a position where they can achieve some of their goals regardless of how good they are because of course it's absolutely no problem at all to take um, you know Tiger Woods and ask him to play to par but if you're taking someone who's you know got no experience your job is to is to get it done not to make you know not to make excuses about them being rubbish so it was a big part was learning that it was amazing though I, like I, the those early the the apprenticeship was not in the glamour locations of the Seychelles the apprenticeship was spent on the um the Val uh, river outside uh, Johannesburg and um near a little town called Paris or Paris um um in uh, with a bunch of uh, the the boys there who are some of them are Afrikaans some of them weren't um but were in a very Afrikaans part of South Africa where the local pub outlaws had um a sign you had to drive up quite a long way to get to the pub um and it had a sign which said um in Afrikaans no blacks and no English um which meant there was basically for Afrikaans speakers but we went there because um uh, there was usually about four, between four or six of us kicking around there and usually three or four of the boys could speak Afrikaans so we could go there. But man, I got my ass whooped a couple of times properly there by the Afrikaans farmers. Um, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was wild. The, like it was, those were some properly wild, wild weeks and months that were spent on in camp um, down there. We had clients come down from johannesburg to fish with us real simple fishing on the river um for a little fish called a yellowfish which basically behaves like a brown trout um so we'd be doing kind of classic technical um upstream dry fly fishing and um nymphing and that kind of stuff but it was when the fishing stopped it was just it was absolutely unhinged that's south africa particularly the afrikaans part of South Africa was just felt lawless and it was amazing but holy moly was it was it crazy um so we do an apprentice did an apprenticeship there and then then start going to different destinations um like Seychelles um where you know the stakes were raised and all the all the mucking about um in South Africa stopped and we had to be professional and we had a lot of responsibility with high value clients in really difficult locations so a lot of um logistics and planning and security and no alcohol um, when we were working so that was that was always that was a good policy yeah and just before we move off from south africa um did you like the fact it was lawless i i loved it yeah i mean I, it, it's I, I did and i didn't in the end I, I spent three years based in south africa um and in johannesburg and i i'm always been someone who's don't have a lot of self-control and I, I like a lot of um stimulation and i don't and i'm very bad at um yeah i'm very bad at kind of self-control and i like i like chaos and anarchy so that's why you know the dot-com kind of working stuff worked really well because it was just absolute carnage ultra high pressure um, and a lot like stuff just breaking down and, and high stakes so i, I i've always I say I like it. I don't like it at the time, but I sort of, you sort of seem to go back for it again and again. So South Africa was the was the same kind of things going on, but um, in ways that were 
a lot more dangerous. So Johannesburg is not, it's a lot better now. Like it changed a lot over the, the period, even the period I was there, but um, it was dangerous. It was dangerous then. Like if you were drunk and getting into fights or um, driving around drunk in places that you shouldn't be, it's everyone knew somebody that had been like hijacked or um, uh, everyone knew someone who'd been shot and killed for a mobile phone. So I, thankfully I missed all of that. Did get held up. Um, a robot though um, or uh, traffic lights as they call them or they call them robots we did get held up at one um, but yeah just got into way way too many situations usually involving alcohol and so by the end I was just like I can't I can't stay here it was just gonna I'm gonna burn out um, so it was very Moorish but by the end it was sort of almost completely out of control it was just it was just carnage yeah, and forgive me for saying like we don't have to go there, but I've, you don't drink that, right? No, I don't. No, I, I've not had a. Pro- I've never had. I've, I've never had a problem with not drinking. Um, I don't wake up in the morning. I need a drink, but I'm very, I'm I'm hopeless at stopping once I start. Um, and um, yeah, it's I've never. I've, I, 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 alcohol is something that's always amused. Or it's always something I find difficult to deal with in Scotland, and also particularly attitude to it in Scotland. I've never drunk for pleasure ever, and it took me a long time to realise that that I've never, I would never have a pint for the sake of having a pint with with friends. I, I, I love chatting to people, and I don't need alcohol to do that. Um, and. Uh, so when I used to drink, it was for exactly when I used to drink, it was for that to create that that chaos and carnage. And I'm I, I couldn't, I don't have, um, I didn't have a, a strong enough personality or wasn't outgoing enough to create it without alcohol. So uh, alcohol was the route to which um, I had enough confidence for the like the carnage to really kick off in bars and things like that. Because and. Yeah, so and over time, I think as you get older as well, you just become. I certainly did. You just become a worse and worse drunk, um, and so when you're a youngster, generally it's quite innocent and you're you're good fun and you're a good laugh. But I just found as I got older, you were just. I was just. I was a worse and worse drunk, and I felt worse and worse after it. So um, I just. It took me. A, I knew I wanted to stop drinking for a long time, um, but it took me a long time to be able to. To really get it done, and it actually it was it was when my partner at the time got pregnant, um, that was the opportunity where I could say no, and that was the reason I could say no, and I and the hardest thing was getting people in Scotland to accept it, so people would push you and push you and push you to have a drink, and it took a long time, um, but uh, yeah, so that was like six years ago, and it, I've not been completely teetotal, like I've still had. I've still, I've, I've still had a drink or a glass of wine, and I still will occasionally have a glass of wine. But the like going to the pub and drinking three or four pints or something like that is just, it's just a complete no-no. Because once that, once that snowball starts rolling downhill, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I can't stop it. And do you think? I mean, was it part of the culture in Africa? Oh, massively. I mean, hard drinking. We it was like sailors on shore leave. It was insane. Um, yeah, and of course, the the worst thing, the scariest thing about Johannesburg is it just had, it was completely lawless. So you were drink driving everywhere, um, um, you know, bribing policemen when you got stopped at roadblocks, um, and it was just, it, it, yeah, it was it was dangerous on so many different levels. Um, 
So yeah, oh yeah, it was a huge part of it. It was a massive part of it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's talk about the Seychelles, I guess. And what that was like, and you, what you experienced, and what went down. So the Seychelles was and is the sort of picture postcard tropical paradise. Everyone thinks of like weddings on white sandy beaches, like powder puff beaches with like incredible blue seas. Um, and then the Seychelles has these sort of this big outcrop. It's basically a big outcrop. Well, Mahi, the um, the main island, is this big kind of granite outcrop in the middle of the ocean. There's got these black rocks. Um, so it's abs- it looks absolutely incredible. We worked on um, our fly castaway, the tiny little guiding operation um, that I worked with, set up by um, three three guys in South Africa. We really kind of specialised in doing um, trips right on the very edge of what was possible. And the reason you do that is because, generally speaking, it's very difficult to find any kind of environments and ecosystems now which haven't been impacted by people. Um, but if you do find them, I mean, that's one of the things that I think we have really lost now is our awareness of just what abundant biodiversity looks like. Um, you know, we think seeing, you know, little collections of animals here and there is is nature. But when nature's left alone, there's absolutely shit tons of it. I mean, unbelievable amounts of it. So we would go to long way, like a long way to find those really pristine, untouched spots. And in this case, that meant traveling down to the Seychelles Archipelago, which is about one and a half thousand K off the East African coastline. And the, the bottom of the archipelago is about what was it about 400, 400 maybe 400 K, 500 K from, from Mahi, I think. It would look like the flight, I'm trying to think what the flight time was, like two and a half hours. So it'd be like two, three hundred miles anyway. Just north, actually, by the time we're down at the bottom, we're only 150 miles from Madagascar. Um, um, working on these uninhabited islands with no infrastructure, um, taking more often than not kind of high net worth clients, um, fly fishing on the the flats there. So you have really deep ocean, like abyssal depth ocean, and then these sort of uh, raised coral atolls would climb out of the ocean floor, these pinnacles. And so basically it's like you have the tops of little hills poking through the ocean. And we'd fish right on the top. Um, and these things, these sort of pinnacles under the sea would attract all sorts of fish life and you'd have fish that would move on to the flats but very big ones, like you and me sized big ones and you'd go catch them with a fly rod in shallow water. Um, uh, and so yeah, we did we did that um, and uh, a few, a whole bunch of different species. We did it from a mothership. So um, we'd have a, a vessel anchored off the reef um, and we'd be running back and through through the surf every day um, onto the flats um, and the clients would access the mothership from like a landing strip that was maybe 
um, a day's motor away. So there's just there was some islands there where there was nothing other than a, a landing strip. There's no infrastructure or anything. And we had a, a King Air. We'd fly them down from the Seychelles, down from Mahi, for a couple of hours down to the landing strip. Then we'd go pick them up and take them away fishing for a week. It just sounds amazing. It, it was absolutely amazing. I still think about it every single day. Um, the, the Working with the team um, was a, is a huge part of that. Um, you know, though it, it, it was just it was all guys, um, and we ranged in age from kind of early twenties to late thirties, early forties. But they were a really tight team. Um, we were definitely not all the same. A bunch of you know, we didn't get on. There was a lot, plenty of arguments, and especially, you know, we do stints of like basically it was over a six month window that we'd fish in the Seychelles, and you were on and off the boat for about, I think the longest you'd do is about six weeks I did in a stint, then you had to come off and get a break because it was just relentless. Every single day you were out on the flats um, in blazing sun. That was six days and on the seventh day you did the turnaround and often like you're crossing the seas so it would be pretty rough and difficult and you're dealing with clients. So you were, it was it was physically and mentally pretty taxing work. So there was lots of arguments um, but there was lots of experiences. Although it looks picture postcard, it's quite a fierce environment, and it's you're very exposed because if something goes wrong, you're there's no one is coming to get you. So when stuff went wrong with the boats, like even small stuff, like a, some of the most the most I've had two really terrifying experiences working, um, of fly fishing in the salt in tropical saltwater environments, and both of them involved engine failure, um, and both of them have involved um. Being on the um the lee side of an island, so in a wind shadow, but the engine failing and needing to run back to shore, but the engine fails and gradually you drift out and further and further and further off, um and you can, I'm not a great mechanic or anything like that, and you can't get the engine started, and then you come out of the shadow and you're in the wind and you're now two or three miles from shore, and you're just slowly getting blown away, and then you realise that there is no one who's coming to get you, and then it dawns on you like if this engine doesn't start what happens now because you know as i say you we're a thousand k from the east coast of africa you're not landing there anytime soon you're not hitting another you're not going to bump into other traffic there's no one on channel 16 um and that so the two of the most terrifying experiences have been sitting in a boat where actually nothing is happening but in your head it's just like every alarm bell on the planet is going off because you can't get the motor started. There's no one on the radio. No one's coming to get you. Pretty soon, I remember being in a boat and with them. Um, this happened twice to me, actually. You never learned, but um, this was on the the second the the second time it happened was on um, Christmas Island in the Pacific, which is like two thousand miles south of um, Hawaii. And someone on the boat, we couldn't get the engine started. We were this was at night as well, so it was dark, jet black. We could still see the lights on the shoreline, but they were starting to disappear. And someone was trying to fix the outboard. And the guy I was with, um, Jono, said to the guy that was trying to fix the outboard, one of the, the local um, boat guys said, "Look, just leave it because if you drop something in the dark, um." and you can't see it, then we're not going to be able to fix it because we had no head torches or anything like that. Why would you have a head torch? And I thought, well, that's actually quite sensible. Um, and we'll fix it in the morning and we'll we'll just get going. And then the boat guy looked up at Jono and his local accent said, uh, but in the morning, we won't be able to see land and we won't know where we are. 
And I was at that point, I was just like, you just have this feeling in your the pit of your stomach. And there's plenty of times I've been scared when stuff is happening, like you're up high or on a cliff. But when you're literally just sitting still and nothing is happening, but like the panic of total isolation and complete powerlessness sets in, oh, it was, it's the worst feeling ever. Um, so uh, yeah, there was, there was experiences like that, which really forged very close bonds amongst the, the, the team there. Um, and, you know, when you, when you go through that with people, even if you don't get on then or afterwards, there's still something that binds you together in a way that you have a responsibility and a relationship with each other that is, it's not friendship, but it's, it's something else, which is just as important. So why do you think you told that whole story with a big smile on your face? <laughs> Because, I, well, part of it goes back to that, that weird need for um, kind of chaos and carnage. And it's the it's getting through the other side of it that it, you hate it at the time, but without it and getting through the other side of it, it it's just something that sort of re- reappears in my life all the time. Though to me, I just, I just it's it shared, shared experiences and and. Though, which is weird for someone who's not that I'm not that motivated by really close intimate relationships but um, sharing experiences with teams of people and going through things with teams of people whether it be like a really important server breaking down in a dot com environment but in the middle of the day when there's you know you're turning over a million quid an hour um, and you know, if it doesn't, if you don't get it sorted, that it's all over. You know, sharing that with a bunch of database engineers and things, um, or you know, the carnage in South Africa, or you know, dealing with boats and really scary situations in the sea, it all sort of leads you back to the same place, which is the there's, I guess, a lot of stimulation and a lot of relief, um, but also you know, you have a kind of frame of reference, which is the people that you, you did it with. And I, I, to me, that's what's really, I guess maybe it's because maybe it's about being like outcome and goal orientated. I don't know what it is, but um, doing stuff with people is just, is and having those experiences and be able to look back, I just, I think it's incredible. And I still, I, I just, my life's different now and I'm very happy it is, but um, I still, I look at pictures of me with particularly with the the guys from South Africa and um I look back at it and I love the pictures from before before we like the very early days when before we set off and did what we did because you sort of I look at them and I think you don't know what's coming but it's it's a it's going to be incredible um and I I I have these like little mini panic attacks that that's never is gone and it's never it's never coming back, and it's just like you th- sort of think, why on earth did you stop? But it it it, it made sense. But yeah, and before I ask that question, which is inevitable, do you again maybe forgive it? Like we've spent the last you know six days having deep borderline arguments and interesting discussions at the dinner table. So do you think it was healthy that it was all blokes? And do you think it would have been different if it wasn't? No, it wasn't healthy. It was a it was an ultra male environment, um, and um, it was probably everything 
large parts of everything that's bad about a male environment. Um, it, it's very difficult for me to see how we could have, how, how in that setting with us behaving in that way, we could have we could have worked had had women in the team. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's it, it wouldn't have worked then, but there's just there's there's just that that was but that was down to our attitudes and our behaviour, um, and and perhaps actually it would have it would have moderated things considerably if there had been more female influence. I know certainly there there was there's a very good land based operation in the Seychelles run by one of the guys who set up Fly Castaway, Keith Keith Rose Innes. Um, and they have a very ultra professional, well run organization um, in which there's a, a pretty well balanced setup between men and women to work working together in that environment of a, a recreational fly fishing environment. And it works very well. Um, um, and it's a very professional, much healthier environment for everyone to be working in for a bunch of guys, younger guys working together pretty much without limit um it it can it can achieve a lot but there's a lot of destructive behavior within it as well um so yeah i i wouldn't i i wouldn't look i wouldn't change it i don't think but um i think for me as much as i got as much as it was positive and i got a lot out of it there was all it's also it's also took me it was the absolute extreme of of all, I guess, the issues that I had wrapped up from years and years. So it was the worst time for me, you know, using alcohol in a way that was very destructive. And it took a long time for me to un, un uh, uh, disentangle myself mentally from from that kind of stuff and, and get myself where I knew I wanted to be. But um, yeah, so I, yeah, it, it wasn't a healthy environment. That's for sure, and it would have been moderated by more female influence for for sure in a very good way. I suppose it goes without saying, really, but yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult. I think in today's in in the world today, we're having all the right discussions, and it's really important for us to be challenged the way we are. And I have a six year old daughter, um, and because I have a daughter. I reflect on the kind of the world that I, I, I want her to be brought up in and how I want her to interact with men and men to interact with her. Um, and so I think everything is heading in the right direction. And I don't think we lose a lot if um, the, that kind of environment doesn't exist. But I do think there are, that environment will, it will achieve things. A bunch of young men um with operating pretty much without control or constraint, will will be able to achieve things that they probably couldn't in any other setting. But it's just a question of whether that is worth the cost in terms of one what they do, and also I think there's you know that environment was hectic, but it was at the end of the day just fly fishing. You think about people who are doing in that kind of environment, but doing much higher stake jobs with much more unpleasant consequences that um, I'm thinking about guys with a military background and that that kind of stuff or um, policing. Um, 
there's the the scope for for that kind of for damage in terms of the the young men being able to look after themselves mentally later on in life is is pretty high um because uh, you just i guess your the the impacts of some of the things you'll be seeing and doing are, are that much more extreme so yeah no i, I think I, i'm absolutely squarely behind everything that's happening now in terms of um the agendas that are being pushed yeah no that's a good way to put it so what changed and why did you leave I mean, I, I, as I say, I'd known for a long time that um, things were um, things were incredible. As as incredible as things were, the, I mean, it's the kind of cliche. The highs were massive, but the lows were hideous as well. And it was it, there was I really felt like it was a lot of it was quite self destructive. I mean, there was it, it, there were times I got lost in Miami for. I mean, I disappeared in Miami for I think it was two days. Um, where friends lost me in Miami and I didn't know where I was and I lost my passport, credit cards, everything. Um, and that was all down to, it was all down to alcohol. Um, and, you know, fishing and just being completely unconstrained and uncontrolled. And I, so I knew that needed to end. So in the end, I, I came home, I came back to Scotland um, and I just, I pulled the pin. I got a dog and I knew if I got a dog, as un, as as kind of, I suppose, as irresponsible as I might sound, um, I do. I actually take when I commit to something, I take it quite seriously and quite intensely. Whether it's to a person or to an animal, if I if I kind of say I'm going to do something, then I'll I'll do it. Um, so I got a dog, and I felt I had a responsibility to look after the dog, and I knew it would stop me traveling as much. Um, so that kept me in Scotland. Um, well, nearly kept me in Scotland. They kept me in Europe. I ended up moving to Ireland for a couple of years. Um. Um, and then I met um, through some a friend, actually through climbing, met a friend, met my partner of the time, and then I had a relatively short relationship, and at, we we accidentally got pregnant, and then uh, nine months later, uh, our daughter was born. And that was six and a half years ago, um, and so that yeah, that that's it. it you know yourself it's well you will find out more and more and more it changes a lot then but um it almost for me the pace of change has increased as time goes by you become more and more you understand more and become more committed to to what you're doing so um yeah i, I knew when we got pregnant from the moment that um we uh we agreed that we'd continue with the pregnancy from that point on i knew i would be a committed father um and uh i was in it to be a committed father who's spending a lot of time with his daughter so i knew at that point that was the the point at which um i was drawing a line under the stuff that i'd done in the past has that been straightforward no um making the commitments easy um it, it took a while, probably it took another two or three years to kind of really let everything flush out um, in terms of commitments I'd made to other people, um, like on the fly fishing side, to let that kind of gradually go in terms of the international stuff. It took another couple of years to wash out. Um, but uh, And then we, uh, I separated with my partner of the time and that, that's, that was, that's been brutal. Um, but um now it's uh 
it, it, it's always been easy for me to stay in a way completely committed to my daughter. That's but that that process has been tricky. Um, but letting go of the fly fishing and transitioning into or letting go of the international stuff and letting go of the carnage and the chaos has actually been just a relief in a way. It's easy to say, it's easy to say much. It's easy to say no to a lot of things. Easier to say no to a lot of things that I would have struggled to say no to in the past. Yeah, and we're all complicated creatures, and sometimes we end up contradicting ourselves. But so at the same time, you're relieved it's all gone, but equally you have the kind of anxiety, panic moments of thinking it might never happen again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I still. I mean, I like. I, I suppose I get the I get the chaos and the carnage in slightly different ways now, um, but it's. Is definitely less destructive, and I, I still think we we massively, or certainly for a, a reasonable chunk of people, we massively underestimate. And I'm not we massively underestimate the destructive power of alcohol in people's lives. Um, and I don't mean that. I think being an alcoholic is one thing, but the grinding effect that alcohol has on particularly people in Scotland who find it incredibly difficult to say no, we don't, we almost can't do anything without having a drink. Um, and I think um, you see, yeah, it, it's, um, you see that, I see that a lot in Scotland. So it's a real relief to to put that in the rear view mirror. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't feel like I'm compromising on anything. I'm not someone who ever, who ever really has compromised on much. I'm pretty hedonistic. So um, I'm doing what I want to do, um, and yeah. So now things are things are about keeping a six year old, six and a half year old happy and engaged, and um, and um, having a close relationship with her and doing things on her terms. Yeah, and I mean, I've had this question in my head for about fifteen minutes. It almost feels stupid asking it now, but if it's only six weeks on before you get pushed back on shore, what stops you doing one trip a year as a guide in the Seychelles just to get the fix? Um. Because it takes you a long time in 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 fly fishing, particularly in a saltwater environment where it's saltwater environment is much more challenging because it's it from a technical perspective it's there's there's more variables to contend with, so you have all the usual kind of wind um sort of weather etc, but then you also have tide um um tide and currents and seasonality and whatnot to deal with so um it's a much more complex um beast to deal with and to deal with clients in it um so it takes you it always felt to me even though i was going back to places i knew it would take me about four weeks to really find my feet and get solid so to do a really really good job um you need to be there for a long time yeah no, i get it so what is life like now dead simple um um monday to yeah my i pick my daughter up from school a couple of days a week um two weekends out of three she's with me and most of the time i'm running around sort of trying to figure out what we're going to do at the weekend and things like that in between times i'm doing a bit of of work and work is now um either fly fishing and guiding or um i do a bit of um sort of consultancy for uh, various NGOs and charities on um, uh, environmental campaigning and conservation stuff. Um, and then I run a small campaign about salmon farming, um, which sort of fell out of the fly fishing side of things. 
Um, and then if I'm not doing that, then I'm either climbing in the winter or outside, like I say climbing, sort of belly sliding up grade fours and fives um, or doing a bit of ski touring or something like that. Uh, and then in the summer um, with spare time, usually, yeah, trying to get up onto like high ridges and doing some easy like alpine running and um, soloing and things like that. So life's pretty good. My friends, you know, live up, you know, have tight group of friends who I see probably two, three times a week um, in the local village. So back and forth to the local village and just hanging out with them. Um, so yeah, it's good. I have a great life. It's, it's, I'm, I'm super happy with it. Well, tired a lot of the time, but it's, um, it's pretty good. One of the things that's most impressed me is we managed to get to an hour before you mentioned salmon farms. So now is probably the moment to yeah. tell me the story. How did you get into it? What do you do? So salmon farming, um, for those who don't know what it is, is the process of raising Atlantic salmon in cages in the sea on the west coast of Scotland. Um, and in the process of that taking place, um, the industry uh, emits its waste it, um, uh, and a range of other kind of polluting factors into the environment that immediately surround it. So it has a range of impacts which um, affect potentially uh, what the wild fish in the local area. Um, it also affects like the seabed and the seafloor. Um, um, and then there's uh, impacts because it's a big heavy industrial process of like big particle plastic pollution all that kind of stuff um, and then there's welfare issues as well on, on the farms themselves I came across that because I, because of fly fishing basically when I came back from the Seychelles I wanted to start a business here fly fishing and um, guiding people so part of that was doing like a feasibility study to understand you know what it would look like and were there any kind of risk factors to starting that kind of business and one of the, the the big ones that came up was the expansion of open cage salmon farming on the west coast of scotland and the impact it's having on migratory fish like wild salmon and sea trout which are the main draw cards for people who want to come and fly fish in scotland so that was about oh however long ago it was maybe 10 years ago or something um i first looked at it and but what i realized was i know absolutely nothing about this industry so people were saying it's bad and i thought it was bad but it was just pure prejudice i didn't know anything about it so then i started essentially just doing kind of book-based research and um, uh, reading stuff on the internet it is one of the most mind-blowing industries the minute you start kind of pulling back the curtain and looking at it initially i was i had to sort of keep rereading things because i couldn't believe the numbers i was looking at numbers and getting data from the government and spreadsheets. And I was just, this cannot be right. Someone's moved the decimal points here or something. Um, and so for a long time, it was just research to understand the fundamentals of the business. How does it, like, how does the, how does the, how do they actually produce the salmon? How does it work? And then I realized this is absolute, it's just crazy. It's just absolutely bonkers the way the industry operates. And and you know, everyone goes through the same process who comes into the, the campaign now, which is, Initially interested and by motivated by either welfare, wild fish impacts, environmental impacts. Then they look at it and go, all I have to do now is just send this to like someone in charge and then they'll change it because it's so crazy. I'm sure once they know, they'll be like, oh, thanks for telling us we're going to change it. 
then you get to the point where you understand that actually, wait a minute, the government does know about this. They love it. And they're engaged in the process of um, essentially trying to shield the industry from scrutiny because they like the idea of having a big industry that's that's growing fast and it's good for it's good for everyone it's kind of reflected glory that kind of stuff um so yeah so i I essentially got to that point and then realized well the only way you're changing anything is by getting a, a mandate and getting a weight of people behind the position you have um and using that mandate to ask the government to change so Part of that, pro- or I realized very early on that the way to engage people was to show them things they'd never seen before. So then I started getting in the water and filming stuff undercover and inside farms, and that had never had never been done before anywhere in the world. And some of the image, well, the imagery was just insane. Fish covered in parasites inside these cages with skin, their skin eaten away from the front of their face. I mean, it's you cannot believe it when you see it, but essentially a fish swimming past with the skin eaten away from its nose back behind its gill plates because it's loaded with parasites and they eat the skin and the mucous membrane and everything. Um, and in these farms, you're not talking about small numbers of fish. You're talking about in some farms, maybe half a million to a million fish in a very small area. Um, and the intensity is just incredible. Um, and that, uh, footage has just kind of started a massive forest fire. So now I spend a lot of time, that was about, the first time I got in the cages was about three years ago. Um, and since then, it's just been uh, now uh, filming other instances of that happening um, and then working with uh, like the BBC. We did a panorama, uh, did an expose on the industry. So I helped them with footage and whatnot. So I do that all the time now and um, run run a campaign to to get open cage salmon farming sorted out in Scotland. Um, and that what sorted out means is much better regulated um, and with the industry transitioning to essentially a zero environmental impact, which it can do. It's just um, unless it's regulated, there's no incentive for them to do it. Um, so that's that's where we are now. It's just trying to put enough pressure, engage enough people to put enough pressure on the government to change. And it might be an unpopular question because it's easier to bury our heads in the sand, but if you're buying any salmon in the UK in supermarkets, what does it look like? So if you're buying farms, if you're buying salmon in the supermarkets in, in the UK, it's invariably going to be the bright orange stuff with the white streaks through it. All of it, no matter where it says it comes from, if it's well, if it says it's Scottish, all of it's farmed. There's no such thing as wild salmon for sale from Scotland because you're not allowed to commercially catch wild salmon because there's so few of them left. So it's all farmed. Um, there are some very niche products from Canada, which are essentially wild-caught sockeye, but um, all of the really bright orange stuff with the white streaks through it is farmed salmon, usually from Scotland, sometimes from Norway, um, and it all comes from open cage systems, which are the most basic form of um, salmon production there is, um, where essentially you just suspend a net in the sea, throw 30,000 fish in it, do that times 12, um, um and then feed them this is where it gets really insane you have a salmon farm in scotland and to grow farmed salmon in scotland you have to catch lots of little fish in peru or the gulf of mexico at a rate of roughly five kilos are caught are taken out of the ocean in peru or the gulf of mexico shipped to scotland 
via some feed processing mill somewhere, either in Scotland or in Norway, turned into feed and then fed to the farm salmon. Um, and then the farm salmon's harvested in at a rate of about one kilo from those five kilos of forage fish um, is consumed by the public. All the while, in that process, throwing off like massive environmental impacts like parasites and disease, which leave the farms because there's no separation between the farm and the wider environment. It's basically like an like a sort of the uh, like a sort of open sewer. Basically, it's just all the waste is dispersed from the farm. So the parasites and disease interact with the wild fish population, which are exactly the same species. So they are they get battered by the parasites and potentially the disease all the fish crap which comes out of the the pens and there's a lot of fish so at any one time on the west coast of scotland and the, the highlands uh, the, the islands as well in the hebrides and uh, orkney and shetland there might be 65 million fish in salmon farms that's in an area where the natural wild population even at its peak would only be maybe a hundred thousand wild salmon those 65 million fish produce the same amount of organic matter, so fish poop, as would be produced by roughly two and a half million people each year. And it just drops out of the cages into the sea. Now, it's different from human poop because it's cold-blooded species, so it doesn't have coli form, so you don't have that public health um, issue. But adding those nutrients to the um, inshore seas um, is a big problem. It's basically, imagine a fish tank that you never clean out. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it throws off those impacts, um, all to create a bright orange fish that no one wanted 20 years ago. Um, it's just a fashionable product. And all the money, virtually all the money, probably 90 plus percent, all heads towards Norway, Canada and the Faroes because 95, 99% of the industry is owned outside Scotland. So um, we just have this industry employing roughly 1500 people but generating the waste of two and a half million and we get a few quid and that's about it it's just on all levels complete insanity i mean it sounds like i'm hearing all this for the first time and it sounds like complete insanity it, it really is yeah i mean and, and the 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 industry in terms of kind of taking you on they love to try and paint you as some sort of like sort of crazy animal rights activist or sort of um politically motivated because the issue is politicized but the, the reality is i'm not i'm just i'm just a bloke um, like anyone else who um, has probably the privilege of just having a little bit more time to be able to devote to it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to go to work at nine o'clock in the morning and work again and work till seven o'clock at night. I've got a little bit more time um, and I'm not prepared to walk past. And um, that's the only, it's the only difference. One of the things I find really interesting, I'm not being critical at all when I say this is um, you don't want to get rid of the industry. You just want to regulate it. I think the industry throws it at me all the time um, and throws it at, at, at critics of the industry and say, well, you just want to get rid of salmon farming. But I'm no, the line I always respond with is I'm, I'm no more opposed to salmon farming as an industry because I want to get rid of the harmful impacts of it than I am opposed to transport because I don't want a big old diesel bus belching out its fumes outside my daughter's school. I just want the harmful impacts to be, I want people to know about the harmful impacts for people to be able to consider them and consider them in the context of a proper adult discussion about the positives and the negatives associated with um, things as they stand and then to make an informed choice. So, uh, and there's no doubt that the salmon farming industry can do what it does 
cleaner and greener. It it might mean that the fish is more expensive, but people buy it because it's they think it's um, good for the environment. They're not they're not going to be bothered if they have to pay an extra ten or fifteen percent. Um, the industry might because then you know there is price sensitivity. A few more people might buy chicken instead of fish, but um, you know I, I think so. Yeah, that that's the response, and I think the the other response now is that. You know, industries can change now. The the acceptable pace of change now, or the, the expectations around the pace at which industries should change, is far greater than it was. So, you know, sort of pre Greta Thunberg, the idea that the um, the automotive industry could completely, um, you know, could transition from where it was to electric in the space of less than ten years, it was just never going to happen. And then. Over the period that Greta's been kicking about, and it's not just Greta, but a whole lot of other people, you know, suddenly Jaguar Land Rover saying by whatever it is, 2025, you're not going to be able to buy a diesel vehicle. We're going all electric. Volvo, the same. Um, and you just see that pace of change. And I think, of course, you're not solving all of the world's problems and you're solving some problems and creating others. But it, 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 it transformational change is possible and um, there's absolutely no reason at all why the industry the salmon farming industry in scotland can't do things a whole lot better um, and we can have a win-win situation um they just don't want to because they don't have to and it's financially motivated yeah yeah the, you, the, the industry again is you can't partly you can place it on the industry but the reality is that the responsibility for how the industry operates falls to government and um, all most of these the salmon farming industry in Scotland is owned essentially by five massive multinational corporations most of them are listed which means they have shareholders and you cannot go to shareholders and say well you can but you're not going to last very long if you go to shareholders and say you know what we're just going to do things a really expensive way that no one else is going to have to do it but we're just going to do it because we are we're the nice guys you know the the big corporations will do it, but they'll only do it if everyone has to do it. And the responsibility for that falls to government. And the Scottish government on that issue is just not brave at all. Um, um, but they are learning very quickly that the issue of salmon farming is not a niche or small issue. Um, it's a household issue. We got specific manifesto commitments in the recent election on that issue. There were very other, very few other environmental issues that did. So we're making some progress. It seems like you've found a purpose. I have. I've found that is kind of where my chaos and my carnage comes from now um, because the process of getting the footage, for example, from the salmon farms um, is difficult and dangerous um, and comes with uh, the potential for, um, uh, yeah, chaos and carnage. And it does, there is a bit of that happens quite often. So when I'm swimming out to salmon farms in rough weather, it reminds me of being absolutely terrified in the surf, um, learning to drive through the surf in Durban. Um, um, and part of the reason I'm able to do it and not panic is because I've done that. Um, so yeah, that that's. But I think it's a it's a much healthier way of of getting that chaos and carnage than it is than uh, behaving like a a thirty year old young man with no consequences and drinking too much um, at the weekend. Yeah, and it sounds really simplified to say, oh, well, I put a wetsuit on and I swim out to a salmon farm and film it and go home. Yeah. What What are you literally doing? Well, I mean, you know the process with, with making or just getting footage um, better than anyone. Um, 
So I, I essentially what I'm doing or what I'm trying to achieve is to is to get good quality broadcast standard footage from inside salmon farms. Uh, what are the fish up to inside the cages, um, and from other locations as well. Um, you know what in the in the process, um, but predominantly from inside the cages. So there's the there's the getting to the cages, um, which is essentially involves swimming through the sea. Um, so throwing on a wetsuit and a pair of fins and swimming in some cases, maybe a mile, just under a mile to the to the farm. Um, and the, the the difficulty there really is just dealing with tide. There's a lot of tide around Scotland. And the farms are located where there's a lot of tide because they like having a bit of current. Um, and then the probably the more the, the most dangerous bit about that is just the boat traffic. If there's boat traffic around, it's difficult to get out the way of it, and they can't really see you. Um, um, all, but I do have like comms when I'm on the water. I've got um, marine like waterproof marine radios strapped to me, so I can talk to the boats if I have to. Um, and then once you're on the farm, it's just it's shooting the footage, the actual process of getting the cameras in the water and recording things um, to a standard that someone like the BBC will take. So you can't have shaky footage or you know, can't be blown or under. Um, so yeah, do that. And then afterwards, there's a the, process, the kind of comms process, which is either press releases or working with broadcasters to and journalists to get the to get the information out and create some kind of story around it. Is it legal? Yeah, yeah, all of it's legal. Um, I wouldn't do it if it was illegal, to be honest. I'm again sort of have responsibilities to my daughter, so um, I'm not going to compromise um, her future. Just uh, I, I wouldn't compromise her future um, and do something that is illegal that might mean that um, I'm not around for a while. Um, but I don't have to worry about that because everything I do is legal. But still, the police show up. The police show up because salmon farmers don't like you doing what they're doing. But the way I think about it is, you have um, floating cages in the sea, and in Scotland, as as a general matter of principle, we're allowed pretty much to go wherever we want. Um, there are places that we obviously can't go, like military zones and things like that, or in through people's gardens. But generally speaking, out and about in the wild, you can go wherever you like as long as you behave responsibly. And I do, and I'll stroll around the countryside and often I'll walk through farmland and very controversially, I'll stop and lean over a fence and look at the stock. And so it's no different when you're in the sea and there's a salmon farm there in a cage to stopping and having a look to see what's in there. The only reason the salmon farmers get so hot and heavy about it is because they don't want anyone to see what's in there. I mean, that that is the, the bare simple facts of it is that what's in there is so horrific and they know it that um, they don't want consumers to see it because they know the consumers will not buy the product if they see it. That's the just the, the hard, the cold hard fact. So all this nonsense about stuff being illegal and whatnot, people often talk about trespass. There's no law of trespass in Scotland for a start. Um, and there's certainly not when you're on the sea. So there's no there's no legal issue around it. And it's like just like if you're walking through farmland, you can be on structures, you can cross fences. There's no issue with that whatsoever. If you're taking bolt cutters and cutting stuff to bits, then you're um, potentially guilty of criminal damage and absolutely should be, you should get in trouble. But um, so the police turn up every now and again to see what you're doing, but um, they're usually, well, they always have been very helpful and understanding and just ask a few questions and let you get on with it. I always ask people two questions to finish. 
The first is what scares you. Oh, what scares me? Um, so, uh, stuff that scares me. Boredom scares me. Uh, genuinely, that's uh, being bored and not knowing what to do is something that's always kind of freaked me out because it used to happen a lot when I was a kid on the farm. You're on your own. You're like, Oof, what am I actually going to do today? Um, being skint is something that motivates me a lot. Um, you know, again, being young and not having money, that was a like properly not having money is a um, something that motivates me a lot. Um, and day-to-day stuff that scares me, heights still terrify me. It doesn't matter how often I go and walk along the, the Coolin Ridge or go climbing or anything like that, being up, being up high still scares the absolute bejesus out of me. Um, I do get you do get used to it, but and you learn how to deal with it. But it's still, I still battle to deal with that massively, and it really, it really annoys me because you see people climbing, you don't seem to be bothered by it at all, and it freaks me out. Um, uh, I'm scared about insects flying into my ear. <laughs> that bothers me a lot. Um, I worry about that. Um, what else scares me? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, the insects in the ear, like being invaded by a parasite, probably yeah, that does scare. That's an African thing. Is like waking up in the middle of the night thinking, "Holy shit, there's something crawling in my ear. It's going to live in there," and finding out that it's your guiding mate plunging his finger in there. Ticks after the last week. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah, that's no good. Yeah, no. So that's it. Probably heights and heights and nasty bugs is the is the worst. What brings you hope? My daughter brings me endless amounts of hope and joy she is um i don't know if we'll be able to say it but she's in a world that sometimes quite it can be quite dark like especially yeah if you're quite introverted it can be quite dark um she is just like the world's best sunrise and sunset that she has the same kind of effect that sort of golden light just softens everything and takes it simplifies everything so yeah i I, yeah it's probably quite cheesy but um i think people young yeah young kids are just fucking great they're just there's there's no bad ones they're all they're all brilliant and um everyone starts off great and we seem to get completely lost with trying to figure out what's right and wrong and they they have it dialed pretty much from the get go. Like there's being naughty, being naughty is not right and wrong, but they know what is right and wrong. Um, and yeah, so that this that just that just gives me a massive amount of hope that basically we are a good, decent animal, and we'll do the right thing. Um, and uh, yeah, and there's more and there's more and more of us, more and more of us appearing all the time. So yeah, that 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 yeah that gives me that gives me a huge amount of hope. It is cheesy, but it's lovely. Last point from me, but you did your eight years at a um, startup and then you did your however many years as a guide and now you've done however many years as an activist. Who knows what the future holds, eh? I know, I know. That's the scary thing is just you you think, well, as I say, I don't, I don't, I don't plan. I've never really been a planner. I know I've always, like I know I have an absolute sense of what the future will be but I don't know what the picture, like I can't see the picture. So I know, like if you, if, well, if, if I was to explain it, I could tell you what the soundtrack will be like, but um, I don't know what the movie is going to be, if you know what I mean. 
So yeah, I don't know what the future holds, but I know I know I'm very some of I'm conscious that some of this interview might have sounded a bit bleak, but I'm very I'm always heading heading towards a positive destination, but with absolutely no plan. So yeah, see, so yeah, I you know we've spent a week together, and I'm you know just to be bold about it, I think you seem happy. I am, yeah, yeah, I, I generally am, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and but I, I, there's been plenty. There has been plenty times when I've not been, when I've been completely lost and not knowing where I'm going. And a, a large part of that has been down to just not having a plan. I think actually, a lot of the time, taking choice away from people and just giving them a job and a purpose is really, really important. Um, not having a plan gives you a lot of opportunities, but it can be pretty pretty miserable but um no i've got loads of purpose now uh, and um i'm happy and i've been lucky i've been so lucky throughout my life like type in so many different situations i've been ridiculously lucky so no i'm very happy life's good it's heading in the right direction we just need to get these salmon farms sorted out and then we're all good we can go home and on that note we'll call it there Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced, distributed and edited by Pip Saunders, Alex Hall and Kate Bullivant. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or stay in touch on Instagram and Twitter at theadventurepodcast. Finally, if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes, then they help other people find the podcast and make the world of difference to us.